Welcome to BIV Today, the daily business news podcast from Business in Vancouver newspaper and BIV.com. I'm Tyler Orton. Now, should investors believe all the hype ahead of all those rosy outlooks we're seeing for Vancouver real estate going into 2020? Real estate analyst Dane Itell, he explains why some may wish to exercise caution before dipping their toes into the market next year. And then retail insider's Craig Patterson, he joins us to discuss the retail trends we should expect next year, as well as a new report on what's driving the growth of luxury retail here in Canada, as well as why Canadians are apparently in love with royalty, or I should say loyalty reward programs, and why Canadian Tire may be in a little bit of trouble. Now, first, let's kick it off with a discussion on real estate going into 2020. And joining us today, it is Dane Itell. He's a founder and lead analyst at Itell Insights. Dane, thanks for joining us on the show once again. My pleasure as always, Tyler. Okay, so we're doing kind of an outlook-themed episode here, looking into 2020 from the real estate perspective. I don't know. We we had the Real Estate Board of Greater Vancouver come out with their uh, insights. And uh, from your perspective, can we take it all at face value? They're very positive right now looking into 2020. They are. Uh, they're expecting roughly a 4% uh, rebound from this year's uh, average sale prices. Um, truthfully, we, we don't see that. And uh, historically, over the last few years, they've been looking for a rebound or, or, or a positive from the year previous, basically since 2017. So, um, and, and, and truthfully, it's not really the real estate board's job to do forecasts or, or you know, it's maybe their job just to tell the stats. So it's, it's not really uh, too presumptuous to say that they're maybe out of, uh, in deeper waters when they're trying to do forecasts. Um, And historically, they've been very, very inaccurate. Not to mention, they never really actually ever give or offer a negative forecast, right? So um, when you never offer a negative forecast, it's a little uh, tougher to believe. Eventually, they will be be correct. Um, However, we don't believe it'll be in 2020. Likely, the detached market will uh, find its base in 2021. Now, not all markets are equal in Greater Vancouver. On our last podcast, I believe we said that there was a, a, a few markets that are closer to their uh, their technical bottoms rather than others. And that'll continue to be the case here in 2020, where some markets are kind of closer to their technical bottom and don't see too much price declination. Rather than other markets, you'll see significant percentage losses as going forward. Well, it's interesting because there are other forecasters out there that think that 2020 will be positive. Absolutely. What gives you pause, though? Why, why do you think we should be a little wary of some of these forecasts? Right. So the the interesting thing, I mean, you, you should see where the analyst kind of sits. And some marketing companies are offering forecasts, which uh, they... they just maybe have an ulterior motive. Sure, maybe. sure. Um, so, and, and even, you know, the good intentions, let's say. Uh, I, I think there's a lot of short-term history um, uh, going on in that thought process. So over the last few real estate cycles, they would be correct. So the previous one, when we were in 2000, end of 2010 till basically the beginning of 2014, we were in a real estate cycle, and then we actually exploded up. So if you kind of took that into this current market cycle, 2016 was the peak, and, and theoretically, we would be ready to go in 2020. However, technically, as we look at the charts, we're, we're still in a negative downtrend. 
and the market's hanging on for dear life right around that 10-year uptrend uh, factor that we've mentioned before here on your show. So, um, yeah, it, it, it will be going negative uh, in 2020, and that will very much mimic the 1990s, end of the 90s market. So we don't mean to be negative on Greater Vancouver long, long term. However, for investment uh, mentality or even just first-time purchasers, we think it would uh, behoove them to wait a little bit longer and see these prices uh, decline some more. Also, you're actually going to see a lot more inventory. Uh, going into 2020, one of the things that we think uh, uh, is, is being missed here, um, first of all, the purchasing that has been going on here over the last two quarters or so is largely stress test mitigation based. So the prices were down 18% earlier in 2019. That is your stress test, basically, right? So all the folks that had been sidelined have been back out purchasing. Now, going forward, we believe prices will decline from their current position at 1.583 down to 1.4. Could happen in the first quarter. Similarly, as last year, we saw the February sale price at 1.47, which was a, man, uh, a mammoth drop. So we expect to see something like that going into first quarter. When prices hit 1.4 average sale price in the detached market, that will have erased any equity gains since 2015. Now, the odd part about that, prices basically went up 430 or 480,000 since 2015. Your mortgage renewal from 2015 is in 2020. So if you pulled out some of your accrued equity and maybe purchased a condo as an investment because real estate was so hot, your mortgage renewal might be a little bit more difficult this time. So you will see the inventory tick up with actually need-based selling start to find its way into the market. And that's why we can't say that the market's bottoming when you're going to have a, a, a section of the market that isn't almost going to be starting to panic sell. That, that, doesn't be, uh, uh, that doesn't prove out to be a, a positive for the market. So for sellers, are you thinking end of 2020, early 2021, or, or what's kind of your own forecast? Well, we, we believe that 2020 will be a rough year. You'll see some foreclosures start to come onto the market. 2021 will basically be the, the end of this negative market cycle. We believe that's when we're actually going to start to break out of these downtrends that have been established since 2016. Um, also, 2020, end of 2020, like we said, we're going to start to see some foreclosures come to fruition. There will be sales in the courts, and inevitably when you see foreclosures actually taking place in Greater Vancouver, you do see the investors start to dip their toes back in. So as we were saying here, this last year, we thought it was a lot of need-based buying, stress test mitigated uh, purchasers. Next year will be a similar factor. We're not going to see too many investors because prices are still declining. However, once the prices start to bottom, foreclosures show up on the market, you will see the investors show up probably with droves in 2021. And then again, the market takes off from this point going forward in 2021. We will mimic the early 2000s when we passed the previous market cycle and blew up, I believe it was by a, a, a gain of 163% within the matter of eight years, right? So after you experience a long market cycle, you do experience a longer growth trend. And that, that is the forecast. However, we don't think an investor should purchase today with the anticipation of seeing equity gains. We would rather wait for the closer to the market bottom and actually accrue straight equity rather than necessarily maybe lose another 150000 if you purchase today going forward, wait to recruit, or, uh, uh, recruit that equity back and then see the gains. We would rather you just purchase nearer the, to the bottom. 
Well, if we, I don't know, take a, a microcosm sort of snapshot of what's going on, let, let's consider the latest monthly numbers, though. Sure. Uh, a lot of people will point to November and be like, well, look, sales are going up, sales are going up. Um, what's your explanation for this? Because I, I think there is kind of a logical explanation that could be made for somebody like you that is not as uh, hot on the market as other people are right now. Well, and, and that's the interesting thing here. I mean, sales are up undoubtedly year over year. However, this time last year was the worst time on the history over the last decade or so, the last right. 15 years. So I, I think we should be a little careful about how we're saying it's up 48%, it's up 53%, but up from what? Off of, you know, devastation, right? So the actual sales for the detached market were 834. I mean, we're, we're not breaking through any old, uh, or t- old technicals or even back up to the middle ground. Middle ground of the detached market is roughly around 1,200 sales. So we're, we're still well off of that. The, um, the inventory is continually growing. We're actually just sub 5,000 for the first time here in the, in the last while. So that has taken that seasonal effect. And, and, and truthfully, what we believe we're going to see going again into 2020 is a lot more inventory. So the, the sellers that have actually achieved sales here, the 834 of them, we believe a lot of them are that newer uh, uh, listed property that's actually in tune with the market that, you know what, hey, it's not as good as it used to be. We have to list realistically to actually get some attention even at open houses, let alone receive an offer. So they're amenable to, to a negotiation process rather than clients that have been on the market for two or three months they got told their price was going to be X and now they're not getting X, right? So they're a little bit upset, not willing to do a price uh, uh, reduction and, and, and they're just really sitting on the market. So what's interesting is the inventory is coming down. However, the days on market is still ever increasing. So you really have your haves and your have nots. Um, that again said going forward in first quarter of 2020 is when you're going to see a lot of inventory show up just naturally the spring factors summer factors so we will see that inventory rebound and again you don't have that investment mentality of purchasing it's only the 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 folks that do have a need to purchase will be going forward. So we'll see that imbalance between the supply and the demand factors going again. It was just interesting for me. I was looking over your analysis and you had actually pointed out the number of days, like a lot of these homes were sitting on the market though. Do you think people are going to be antsy? Because, you know, maybe if they're being told their house will go for X amount, are they going to get to the point where it's just time to sell need-based perhaps? Absolutely. And and, well, and, and that'll be going forward, right? So the belief, you know, the optimistic belief. I mean, if you have a property on the market, you probably don't really want to believe that ITAL Insights is correct, right? Because we're saying it's probably going to go down, you know, roughly at least a technical point by 12% going forward next year compared to where we are. Right now it's 1.583. Next year we'll see 1.4. That's a 12% difference. So, of course, the person on the market hopes we're incorrect and they're believing the 4% growth. So they're not necessarily in a hurry to sell. However, um, when the market realizes the price losses, that's when they'll be in a hurry and, and, and a desperation factor because we're not up 4%. We're actually down 12%, which is a 16% reversal from their thoughts, right? So that's why we think it's a little bit dangerous for the board to put out forecasts and for the, the, the media at large to buy into them so wholeheartedly um, because they're always incorrect, 
so when you keep putting this out there, it's a little bit of a, a mislead to the public at large. Um, so that's why, um, you know, we, we do offer our services. We offer the static reports. We offer uh, the overall macro reports as well. So you can get your nitty-gritty city, this Coquitlam's the new west, and you can also get the overall greater Vancouver uh, technical movement. And that's really, you know, benefited our clients greatly, as you can tell. Um, well, before we depart today, uh, just tell me a little bit, how does maybe the condo market stack up in November versus the detached market here? Sure. So the condo market, um, it's actually at a very interesting point. So I believe last uh, last time we were mentioning it, it was right around 673. So we're back up to 670, which is interesting. It's not as high as the previous high. So it's, it's, it's setting up possibly a divergent trend coincidentally right around that middle threshold. So we came in, like I say, at 670000 We've come up off of uh, 643 was kind of our average sale price in the second quarter of 2019. So we've been, really been range-bound in that 30000 We anticipate going forward to see that break and actually go sub-640. Uh, uh, 2020 prediction, we will probably test $584,000, which would be a further decrease of 13% from where we're currently at right now, which is 11% down from the peak. So uh, a 24% total drop is anticipated by the end of 2024 or 2022 have occurred. Okay, so I think what I need to do is go through all these uh, past forecasts from the, the real estate board Absolutely. and just kind of uh, thumb through and see maybe uh, where they don't quite match up versus what uh, came out from the year. You got it. And um, like we say, you know, it's it, it, the markets do move quite quickly, right? And that's why we use average sale prices. The board actually likes uses an HPI, which is a very convoluted factor. And it seems to be never moving, even though we notice prices are right. So there, there's a few uh, misnomered numbers that uh, are, are quite often thrown out. And, and we uh, we use the same data points all the time and uh, keep the market uh, with with actionable intelligence. Excellent. Dane, as always, thanks for joining us on the show. Thank you, Tyler. That's Dane Itell. He is founder and lead analyst at Itell Insights. And stay with us, Craig Patterson from RetailInsider.com. He joins us to talk about retail trends for 2020. And joining us today to talk about the latest retail industry news, it is Craig Patterson, Editor-in-Chief of RetailInsider.com. He's also the host of Retail Insider's podcast. Craig, thanks for joining us on the show. Thank you for having me. So you guys, you have a new story up looking into, I guess, the, the consumer base behind what's driving luxury retail growth here in Canada. Tell me a little bit about what you guys have looked at uh, based on a study that came out. Yeah, I found it to be a really interesting study, and I've actually been doing reading even beyond it. Um, what they're finding is that, uh, and it's probably no secret for anyone in Vancouver, that uh, you know those you know say of an ethnic Chinese background are actually primarily responsible for the growth of luxury retail in Canada, and part of that includes our substantial international student population, some of uh, whom have uh, you know tens of thousands of dollars a month in allowance to spend. Well, I'm curious because is how much of it is being driven? Maybe like tourists coming here. It's obviously a big destination from, say, mainland Chinese perspective. How much is it versus that uh, compared with maybe just people that are living here on a permanent basis, like some of those international students, where maybe it's not a permanent basis, but they're here for extended periods. Good question. I mean, it's a little bit of both. Uh, certainly, you know, you've got affluent locals of all backgrounds, of course. Uh, uh, you know, who are able to shop. But uh, at the same time, you know, the Vancouver area is very expensive and, uh, you know, 
incomes as, you know, like real incomes that people actually earn in terms of money, uh, you know, are, aren't nearly high enough even to pay for the housing. So, uh, you know, there is still consumption in BC, but I, I think that it's a, uh, you know, unique situation where, um, you know, the wealthy are the ones that are actually driving the shopping at this point. And that would include, you know, tourists, of course, that would include, uh, you know, locals, uh, whether or not people are studying in school or just have another home in Vancouver. And, and from your perspective, okay, look, we've got like, say, Alberni Street that's really emerged as kind of the center of luxury retail here in Vancouver. Are there equivalent districts in other cities across Canada or, or is it more spread out, uh, not necessarily kind of uh, completely anal- analogous with what we have in Vancouver? I'd say it's fairly similar, um, but only really in probably like two cities. <laughs> so, uh, you know, Canada doesn't have a whole lot of luxury nodes, but, you know, Alberni Street is, you know, definitely the end and the surrounding area, you know, when it talks about the other streets, you know, it's definitely Vancouver's current luxury node. I, I think Oak Ridge Shopping Centre is going to be the second one uh, mm. in Vancouver, that is. Uh, in Toronto, you've really got these two major luxury nodes, which would give Alberni Street a run for its money. The uh, Yorkdale Shopping Centre, which, you know, we report on constantly because a lot of, you know, first-to-market stores open. I mean, it's got the highest or the greatest clustering of luxury brands of any place in Canada, I would say now. Um, Balenciaga just opened last week, a big flagship store. It's... Uh, uh, it's quite the place to be. And then Toronto's Bloor, Yorkville neighborhood, uh, uh, again, you know, another, It's and that's been wealthy for, for a long time. Uh, it's a downtown Toronto neighborhood. Montreal kind of has, well, I guess, um, Avenue, no, Rue de la Montagne, sorry, Avenue Montagne's in Paris. Uh, but really, you know, that area really only has a few luxury brands. So Alberni Street's quite unique, but, uh, you know, there are uh, a few nodes in Canada where there, there are high-end stores in, like, say, Calgary and Edmonton, for example, as well. But nothing compared to Alberni for those cities. Well, one thing that is ubiquitous and maybe not really uh, synonymous with luxury retail, but it's Canadian Tire. You, you've got that everywhere you go in Canada. But we do have short sellers that are now targeting the company. I don't know. Is Canadian Tire in a little bit of trouble or are the short sellers just trying to make a quick and easy buck? Oh, geez, we're hearing both sides. I was uh, reading about that as well. And, uh, you know, the short sellers are saying that Canadian Tire could be in, you know, trouble, be it financially. I think, what was it, $7.9 billion in debt? I mean, that's that's a lot. I mean, yeah. hopefully that Canadian Tire can pull, you know, pull through because it's, I, I think it's kind of iconic, you know, I guess, you know, has the word Canadian in it. I mean, it's one of those few brands out there that are associated with Canada. Uh, so, uh, I'm hoping that the company is able to pull through, uh, you know, if it indeed has some financial issues. Now, the company says that it is going to be fine, and uh, uh, that may be the case, but the short seller was kind of, you know, analyzing the company and saying, well, you know, looking to the future, looking to competition, you know, is Canadian Tire going to be able to keep up? Because, you know, consumer shopping patterns and tastes have changed with technology. You know, a lot of people now are going online, they're, you know, shopping digitally. Uh, you know, they may go to stores for certain things, but, you know, that's very much either for an experience or for something that's convenient and immediate in terms of picking something up. So uh, I think that they're concerned that Canadian Tire may not in the long run, you know, keep up with uh, uh, the changing patterns in, uh, you know, shopping behavior amongst Canadians, which is changing very, very rapidly as technology is adopted. Yeah, you know, there's a a Canadian Tire just around the corner from the BIV newsroom. I I walk by it all the time. Uh, They're doing a lot of renos as well. I I do see them making efforts to keep up to date. But what's your take just based on what you've been observing the last few years about where they stand in just that that race to keep up with all the changes going on? Yeah, I think Canadian Tire has a lot of opportunity. They have been renovating a lot of their stores. So um, I'm not sure if the one there on... uh, 
uh, Fairview Slopes, I think is the, what the neighborhood would be called, kind of Mount Pleasant. Uh, I'm not sure if they're finished yet, but certainly, um, you know, the new interiors are a little more upscale and look a little bit better. They're you know, introducing, you know, certain tech, like you can, they've got these payment towers, whatever you call them, where you can, uh, you know, go in and pick up items, kind of a click and collect situation. Uh, I think Canadian Tire, you know, certainly has the resources and the wherewithal to, uh, you know, keep up with the times. It's a matter if they do it. I mean, it's one thing to know how to do something, and it's another to actually execute it. And, you know, Canadian Tire is a very big company, and, and that's a positive and a negative. I mean, they'll have the resources uh, to, to do, to, you know, to do it, essentially, but it's also more challenging for a big company to, you know, being nimble and, and make changes quite quickly, especially because, you know, legacy technology or, you know, if, if something's been the way, has, the way it's been for a long time, it can be tough to change it when you're really, really, really big. Uh, another story I find really interesting this week here, Craig, uh, you guys are talking a little bit or at least uh, linking on your website to a story about how Canadians are the most active loyalty program users. Tell me a little bit what that means. I'm just thinking about, say, my my PC Optimum card and how it's all app-based now and I, I'm using it at, say – Stores that uh, are like under that big umbrella uh, with, uh, say, Real Canadian Superstore as well as shoppers. Tell me what's going on with Canadians as a whole, though. Yeah, I found that interesting. I mean, I guess it's not really surprising, but, you know, I thought around the world everybody had all kinds of loyalty programs, and they do to a degree, but I guess Canadians are really... uh, liking that. I mean, I think it all comes down to uh, psychology. Um, you know, if a loyalty program involves some sort of, you know, cash back, some sort of financial uh, gain, you know, with your PC Optum points, you can spend them, you can, you know, earn them at like 20 times the points, depending on how much you spend on certain days. You know, these are all these great fun things that I take advantage of. <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, Canadians, I think, by their very nature, are value-oriented. Um, as we were just talking about luxury retail, you know, that's one segment of the population. But quite uh, more broadly, uh, you know, we like a good deal. And I think that, you know, loyalty programs are certainly uh, a way to get that, whatever that would be, whether or not it's, you know, the shop, uh, I should say, PC Optimum Points. I shouldn't say Shoppers Optimum Points, but the name has technically changed. Um, or whether or not, you know, it's uh, Amazon Prime, which I, I guess is a loyalty program that, that would, you know, in theory offer savings on, on shipping. And, and other companies, you know, like Lululemon have tried to get into that. And that's been more, uh, again, one of those almost membership-based uh, programs that I haven't really heard much about it recently. <laughs> yeah, it's just interesting. Like you say, uh, you would think that it's kind of, you know, the same in other countries, but there's just something about uh, Canada. And it, it's just interesting to me because I, I think of Canada as more regionalized than uh, other countries just owing to its size. But it seems as if this is kind of a trend that permeates the country as a whole. Yeah, you know, I really do think that Loblaw has been a big part of that. I mean, I think that uh, the company over the years has really curated a loyalty program. You know, and obviously other companies have followed or, or done it themselves. But I, I just think that given our small population and given the prominence of uh, you know, this one loyalty program, I think that we've become conditioned to uh, uh, embrace those. Um, you know, I, I think in, in some respects, I would hand this to Loblaw and say, you know, uh, you know you've know, you done a good job uh, and also competitors are doing it. Well, jumping over to the next story here that uh, we're following, it's uh, Vancouver. We now have officially our first uh, 3D printed kind of customized shoes in a in a retail setting. Tell me a little bit what's going on here. I found that really interesting. Uh, my mom saw the article and said I should get some insoles or something made for my feet. <laughs> yeah. Um, you we're seeing, you know, tech merging with fashion. And in this case, uh, it's Casca is the name of the company. They've actually opened a store in Vancouver. So 
uh, there's actually a place that you could go and, uh, you know, experience this, uh, essentially. So the 3D printing shoes, uh, you know, using technology, um, merging it with fashion, I thought that was really quite interesting. It's Vancouver-based, and Vancouver's, you know, technical uh, fashion is a thing from Vancouver, you know, whether or not it's Lululemon, uh, uh, you know, Kitten Ace, you know, these brands are all developed in the Vancouver market, and now this... Uh, uh, you know, a new company has come about, has already opened a store. It, it was able to do this through financing and, uh, you know, monies that it was able to raise and plans to expand it further. I, I'm really curious to see how this one goes. Yeah, it's just interesting because the cost of all technology is just bringing all of these things down so much. So it, it is fascinating to see, like, what could be coming out of the woodwork next when it comes to this merger between fashion and technology. Would you be willing to get maybe some 3D printed shoes if the price is right? Definitely, yeah. I, I'm willing to try it out. I have a lot of shoes already, but <laughs> but if uh, if this is something you know which is great, it's going to you know uh, help a person you know walk and, and whatever else they're doing in, in, in their footwear. I, I think absolutely. My one thought though is that these are custom made, and you know we're not talking about insoles, but say the actual shoe. Um, you know, if a person has an extensive wardrobe or, or you know likes to have a lot of pairs of shoes, it could get quite expensive. But I suppose that's I think generally if someone's buying a lot of shoes. But, uh, you know, I think the price point is going to have to be there. If they're $1,000 a pair, you're not going to have people buying 20 pairs of those unless they're wealthy. Uh, you know, I think that, you know, the whole the whole gist of it, just given the location, it's on Main Street, uh, probably not too far from you guys as well. It's a, it's a you know, a couple of kilometers away, I think. Uh, you know, that, that's not a, you know, if, if they'd open a place like, you know, Shaughnessy or Alberni Street, you know, they'd be catering to the wealthy. But I think this is very much a mass market concept. Yeah, I know the uh, location that you're talking about. It's a prime walking area for just, you know, people that like to go window shopping. So it is interesting that, uh, look, you can window shop, uh, pop in, get some new shoes, maybe even more walking to do more window shopping in that area. Uh, one other thing mm. that uh, I, I'd like to discuss here is, uh, look, that infamous multi-million dollar chandelier under their Granville Street Bridge, it's even being picked up by outlets like CNN at this point. But uh there is a bit of an emergence of maybe kind of a, a new kind of sector coming to be in that area. Tell me a little bit about what people are calling the beach district. What can we expect from that area besides these giant chandeliers that cost a fortune? <laughs> yeah, $4.8 million for the chandelier. I know there's a bit of controversy around that, right? People were saying, wow, you know, we've got people, you know, living in Oppenheimer Park and tents and you know, then you've got this fancy chandelier in a neighborhood, which includes some very, very expensive condominium units. So, I found it fascinating in terms of, you know, I actually used to live at Richards and Beach um, years ago. Uh, so, I, I, you know, I know the neighborhood well. It's about a block or two block and a half away from there. And, uh, quite, you know, a quiet neighborhood. There, there wasn't a ton of retail around there. In fact, almost none. Um, what's happened is, you know, you've got West Bank as a developer has created, you know, Vancouver House. Uh, you've got another development going across the street. Now they've got this spinning chandelier, which becomes an attraction. Um, it only spins twice a day. I think it's noon and then 9 p.m. I thought that they should do it more often. But I guess it's kind of like the, uh, what do you call it, 9 o'clock gun. People will kind of <laughs> <you> know, <laughs> sure. um, come to expect it, you know, not too often. But, uh, you know, London Drugs... Uh, We'll be opening quite soon, like I think very soon, actually, right by. Um, so there's a little retail clustering happening there for the local neighborhood. Uh, uh, a fresh city market, a grocery store is going to be opening there. Um, a uh, post-secondary institution has been announced. It hasn't opened yet, but uh, really it's a new little neighborhood that's formed out of almost nothing. I, I, I think that's, you know, kind of cool, actually. Uh, a great place to live, but again, you know, it's, it's primarily for people that can afford it. It's, it's going to be an expensive area, and, you know, the, the retail around there will certainly... 
cater to that population as well. Yeah, and if people are drawn in from other neighborhoods just to look at that chandelier, maybe they'll stick around and uh, buy, uh, I don't know, a couple things uh, while they're walking back home to uh, the dregs of uh, the, the uh, uh, sector of, uh, you know, where there's no multi-million dollar chandelier. But uh, why don't we leave you off with this here, uh, Craig? Uh, we're going into 2020 in just a few weeks. Um, any trends that you see coming to be with regards to the retail sector? Yeah, I mean, I've been tracking, you know, what's been happening in the industry for a few years. Uh, I mean, and not all of it's good news. I, I do think we're going to see um, a few companies file for creditor protection. In fact, I know that's going to happen, and some of them will be big. So, um, you know, Bentley Leathers, we talked about recently, uh, um, is one of them, and uh, a few others will be coming as well. I mean, that's not so much a retail trend, that's just what's going to be happening in the industry. But, um, uh, you know, I, I, again, we're going to continue to see international brands coming into the market. Um, we're going to see, uh, you know, company, you know, retailers that are, you know, good at what they're doing really bridge that, you know, online experience with physical retail. Uh, you know, being able to pay for something quite easily and seamlessly, whether or not you're in the store or online. Um, you know, I think we're going to continue to see a lot of, uh, you know, restaurants, food and beverage uh, opening, um, especially as there's a lot of vacated retail spaces uh, on certain streets, say, for example, in Vancouver. Um, we'll probably see less in the way of fashion retail and more, you know, in the realm of, say, food concepts. But uh, again, you know, with high rents and taxes, that can be challenging. So I think maybe one of the trends for Vancouver is going to be, you know, more vacant retail space, unfortunately. I think that's uh, that's a thing. But, uh, you know, I think that the future is... Uh, really going to be merging physical and, and digital retail. Uh, you know, we're going to see exciting concepts. We'll see, you know, retailers that are in existence now, uh, you know, if they're doing what they should be. They're going to be, you know, experiential retail uh, locations if they have physical locations. Uh, you know, websites will get a lot more interesting. But I also do think that in the next, say, five years, we're going to see quite a few homegrown uh, Canadian retailers, you know, go under, I think, as, um, you know, international uh, competitors come in. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a very competitive time in retail. Yeah, it just, it, it's amazing to see how quickly things change and just trying to keep your head above water when it comes to this industry. So I'm intrigued by, I, I, there's going to be a lot of innovation that comes through, no doubt, but it, it is going to be very difficult for a lot of the incumbents and just how easy it is for them to shift gears. Another really major trend that I think is super fascinating right now is if you think about it, um, you know, in years past, if you were, if you became familiar with a brand, say you may have discovered it through a department store or a multi-brand retailer. Uh, that's actually quite often the way it was done. And, you know, in decades past, you know, you'd go to Woodward's and, uh, uh, you know, there'd be all kinds of different brands there. And you're like, oh, well, what's this, you know, Jones New York brand or Polo Ralph Lauren, you know, whatever brands are being carried, say, in the fashion uh, realm. Now what we're seeing is brands don't even need multi-brand stores. They're able to engage directly with the consumer because, you know, they've got online websites. Uh, you know, they've got social media. They're using influencers. Uh, you know, someone's wearing the product. So, uh, brands like, say, Nike, for example, now, um, they don't really even need to be in a multi-brand retailer. So we're seeing Nike stores opening, as an example. And, and some of these uh, brands may actually pull out of, uh, you know, multi-brand retailers and just operate their own stores. So we're seeing a real shift in uh, the way that brands are able to get in front of consumers. And, uh, you know, if you think about it, some of these brands won't need that, quote-unquote, middleman, which is the uh, the retailer, which, you know, takes a cut of uh, 
profits to distribute there. Um, I think we're going to see a lot more brands uh, with their own stores and their own e-commerce websites in Canada, and that's going to go head-to-head with the multi-brand retailers who, you know, have stocked them in the past. Uh, I think that's one of the biggest trends we're going to see. However, you know, still, I think there's a market for, say, jewelers like Burks, where there's a, a clustering of uh, um, brands, because, you know, not all brands are going to be big enough to open their own stores. I mean, there's some brands that are very niche and have a very small market and, you know, will be part of the multi-brand experience. But, uh, you know, I, I say stay tuned in terms of, you know, a lot of brands opening their own stores, you know, be it underwear brands, be it, you know, Dyson, which is, uh, I'm not sure if that's open. I think, yeah, I think it is open now at Pacific Center. Um, you know, that's something you'd find at Best Buy, Canadian Tire, Hudson's Bay. And, you know, now they have a showroom uh, that's a standalone unit in Vancouver. Yeah, always fascinating to keep in touch uh, with you and figure out what's going on. Uh, and, you know, uh, Craig, this will be our, our last show of the year before we go into 2020. I just want to thank you so much for helping us uh, just sharing your insights every single, uh, or I should say, every other week here on the show. Thank you so much, and Happy New Year. I, I can't believe I'm saying that already. <laughs> yeah, well, pretty soon we'll be saying, yeah, we're, uh, we're in the 20s, which is just uh, mind-blowing as well. That's Craig Patterson. He is the editor-in-chief of RetailInsider.com. He's also the host of the Retail Insider podcast, and that's it for the show today. I want to thank you all for listening. You can urge your friends to follow us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. It's going to help even more people find us. For now, I'm Tyler Orton. We'll be back on Tuesday.